I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Paul Einbahn of Francis and Octavia in San Francisco. Hello, sir. How are you? I am amazing, Levy. How the heck are you? Nice to see you. It is a pleasure to be seen. So you're in San Francisco these days and have been for a while, but originally from LA. Yeah, I've been here for 15 years now. What was the LA thing like when you were a kid? <laughs> um, it's different than anywhere else in the world. I, I love LA. I love to visit Los Angeles. Uh. I would move back there if I were filthy rich, but I, other than that, I'll, I'll, I'll stick to visiting. It's an amazing place. You know, I finally got my wife to really like LA this last trip. We were just there a week ago, two weeks ago, officiating my sister's wedding ceremony. Congratulations. Actually. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. I'm now preacher Paul. I'd, I'd like to, for you to call me father if that's okay. You've always been preacher Paul to me, buddy. Okay, good. That's, that's the way I like it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I absolve you of your sins, Levy Dalton. I don't know. That might be more work than you're really willing to take on. <laughs> Hang on. Let me do it again. That's okay. not a minimum wage job. That's okay. a maybe, maybe we'll do the, the whole exorcism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You are healed, Levy. You are healed. Is that because my, my head keeps spinning sins. around that you, <laughs> you feel the need? Yes, exactly. It's kind of hurting my neck. It's making, making me feel tight. Uh, you, you know, the, the celebrity thing, uh, I, I think that my... One of the easiest ways that I can explain the difference is in LA, at good restaurants in LA, when celebrities come in, you cater to them as though they are a client and you do special things for them because you would do that for any client at a high level of restaurant. For example, backdoor entry and, and exiting. If you've got paparazzi following you around or something and you aren't really going out to see or be seen, then going in and out of the back door makes a lot of sense. In San Francisco, the very first time a uh, celebrity came into one of my restaurants, which doesn't happen very often in San Francisco, but but uh, someone did at my very first restaurant in San Francisco. And that night, I saw somehow that it was in the pink pages, the gossip pages. And I was horrified because in Los Angeles, the A-list doesn't go to the places where they're not going to keep it confidential. And I don't know if the rest of the world realizes that. You want to take care of your clients as, as sort of a running theme, shouldn't it be? 
Uh, you want to take care of your clients and not use your clients. Right, sure. That's we, one of the big differences for me. We feel that way very strongly on the podcast. You may have noticed that I allowed you to enter through the parking garage. Yeah, thank you for that. They were bad today, too. There was this tunnel. We were going fast. Too soon. <laughs> so, so what was our segue to restaurants for you and your life? I mean, where did that come along? When I started college, my dad said that he was a shoe salesman in college, but even better than that would be waiting tables in a restaurant. Most amount of money in the shortest amount of time. Also, at the lower levels of restaurants, the least amount of responsibility. So that's how it started. I actually was able to get a job, for better or for worse. I don't think this is a good thing, but I got a job at this crazy themed restaurant, the same restaurant that I had my bar mitzvah at when I was 13, obviously, uh, for the goyim listening. That means when I was 13, my bar mitzvah. And uh, this was a, a restaurant where... We wore costumes called Bobby McGee's. I don't think they exist anymore. It was awesome. They What kind of costumes are we talking about? I can't remember the order of, of what costume I had when, but I was, um, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm recording this. This is going to be on tape. Uh, Come in a little closer to the mic as you tell the story. Yeah. You, you, do you feel me like backing away? I um, Oh, I was, um, and then I was... Uh, I, I, I wore a, a Cub Scout outfit and I was Cubby the Grub Scout, which was actually the best one because it was shorts and a short sleeve shirt and, you know, tennis shoes or hiking boots. It was such a comfortable thing to, to wait tables in, especially when you don't know how to wait tables. And, and the thing I started to say that I was saying isn't necessarily a good thing is I started as a waiter, not as a busser or anything else, because the managers of this restaurant wanted to clean house and get rid of all their old school stuck in their bad habits servers and hire new people. And so they hired me at 18 years old with zero restaurant experience. And I was a God awful waiter. And as a matter of fact, I remember my first trainer telling me the, the guy who's training me to be a waiter and he was the cub scout at the time. So I don't know what I was. I'm just remembering this, this guy, he said, you know, this could end up being a career for you. And I threw up a little bit in my mouth and thought, yeah, right, never. And uh, here I am, whatever, 26 years later. So instead of tips, they give you merit badges? <laughs> Good one. Uh, oddly enough, they, they didn't have that, or, nor did they have points of flair. No, this was a classy place. I was, uh, I think my favorite costume that I wore, and you owned the costume, so it wasn't like you switched them. You owned it. I was uh, Dr. Doggy Hauser, the world's youngest veterinarian. Tell me that's not witty. Come on. I'm surprised the original show wasn't that. Like, <laughs> he's a super smart, super young veterinarian. <laughs> and he writes in his journal at the end. And hilarity ensues. It's like all creatures great and small with like a kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> so how long were you at that place? I worked at Newport Beach because I grew up in Orange County and then uh, moved to Burbank. Uh, when I got into voiceovers, when I started doing more theater-related things. More used to acting. do voice work. I used to do voiceovers, yes. Yeah, for a living. Got paid. I just fell in love with wine and, and kind of switched over and found myself saying no to more and more auditions and yes and yes to more tastings. Were you voicing over tasting notes and stuff? <laughs> yes. This wine has hints of... No. Nice Crushed enunciations. red fruit. Yeah. 
Well, I love the uh, I love the the movie guy. Hello, and thank you for calling Movie Phone. That guy must have been so high when he recorded that voiceover. How else do you talk like this? I mean, it's crazy. Did you know that guy? No, I didn't. That's kind of too bad, you know. I knew a lot of awesome people, though. Do you think that that guy, his friends, just ask him what time movies start, like just randomly? Hey, hey like- Bob. Hey, Bob. <laughs> what time Star Wars? What time Star Wars? Star Wars. Oh, darn you! <laughs> no, uh, one of my friends when I was doing this was the voice of Goofy. Oh, really? And yeah, the voice of Goofy, which is like so hugely iconic, it's crazy. And God, that guy was such a sweet guy. And you know, he didn't look like a big dog with you know floppy ears. He. Uh, what did he look like? I don't want to describe him. Uh, it, it, was in there a, anything in floppy words, about him? <laughs> yes, his chin. And uh, one day, I I went with him to a session just because I mean. Doing, I did voiceovers. I had some success, but this guy was huge. So I went and watched him, and I always thought like I could nail Goofy. Uh, I, I can't remember how he talks. Um, <laughs> he, he's like, like, like a, you guessed it. I'm Goofy. <laughs> some something like yeah. that. I yeah, think. totally. I was pretty good off the cuff. There. So, yeah, and and yeah, considering I don't do this anymore, and he uh, uh, when he like opened his mouth, he was Goofy. It was the craziest thing. You close your eyes. And Goofy's there. Then you open your eyes and you're like, oh, no, that, that guy's there. <laughs> so weird. Yeah, voiceovers is a really cool career because you, you can be the most famous person in the world and no one would know. You could be the voice of Goofy and no one knows. No one knows who you are. And but you're like everyone. collecting huge checks and stuff. <laughs> Boom. Residuals left and right, baby. So where was the wine thing? Like, you know, you're hanging out with like Donald Duck and he's like, hey, I want to introduce you to something. There's this wine. or I mean, what was it? Like, uh-huh. it? <laughs> um, I uh, didn't always suck at, at being a waiter, only at the beginning. And um, I worked at the second big chain restaurant that I worked for who opened up a restaurant in San Francisco. And they asked me, this is while I was going to CalArts Art School, and they opened up a restaurant in San Francisco and asked me if I would come up to train the servers. At this point, I was a waiter trainer. I was very, very skilled at this point. Very, very skilled. And um, I'll tell you who gets the merit badges. <laughs> that was me, doling out the praise and, uh, and the blessings, see? Makes sense that I'm a preacher now. The Reverend. The Reverend, Father Paul. So I had an opportunity to come up to San Francisco for three weeks and open up this new restaurant. And while I was here, I had one day off. They worked me hard. And we decided to go up to Napa Valley, a friend and I. And it was sort of, uh, no, it was totally on a whim. I really had zero connection to wine. I My dad always had bottles around the house, but never wine what was your dad like uh uh he was always old <laughs> and he always smoked a lot he had uh sorry pops love you um he's dead he can't hear me uh <laughs> sorry why am i saying that he was really he was addicted to cigarettes major smoker and i think because of that he was nervous that he'd have other addictions so he had tons of booze in the house and tons of wine in the house, but he never touched them. I really don't remember ever drinking wine other than Manischewitz on Passover. 
Uh, and I've got a funny story about chugging Manischewitz, but anyways. That's a kosher wine for the Goyam in the audience. For the Goyam listening today. Yeah, that's the second time we've had to define something for the non-Jews. I like that. For the non-my people. I had to come to San Francisco to make Jewish jokes in New York. <laughs> you know. Yeah, everybody understands. <laughs> you know. It's not funny. It's just not funny. Yeah, yeah, we get it. So um, the, as I learned more about wine, and, and I know I'm jumping away from the question you asked me, the brilliant question, the insightful question that you asked me. One but, of um, many to come. Oh, God, you're good. Mm, so good. I wish you could see him. This should be a video cast thing because guy's good looking when he asks questions. Looks um, just like Goofy in person. Stops asking questions. <laughs> uh, so, so as I learned more about wine, I started finding bottles that were more interesting. Uh, there was a lot of Riesling. My mom was really into Peace Porter Gold Tropfen. Like at the house, so it was at the interesting house. wine. Yeah, we had we had these two. I mean, there wasn't a lot of wine, but there were there were two. I don't I don't know what you'd call them wine uh, shelf things. Levy, they're coming for us. <laughs> it's the cops. Uh, so so my dad had these two wine storage shelving things. They were maybe waist high and they were shaped like wine bottles, big wine bottles, and you stuck wine bottles in them. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I think so. You put wine bottles in wine bottles. Sure, yeah. I get it. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. It makes no sense. Like most of the things it's like I say. like alliteration for wine storage. Why doesn't anybody understand me? I understand you, dude. Oh, you're so sweet. I mean, not all the time. But. Break time, makeout session. <laughs> Okay, so welcome to San Francisco. Yeah, right. right. So, so as I learned more about wine, I would pull out these bottles and be like, wait, these aren't all crap. These are, you know, some interesting wine bottles. And then as I'd learn more about them, I'd be like, oh, but these are all the wrong vintages or the wrong producers. So they really are crap. And uh, that's kind of the way it progressed. There ended up being like two decent bottles in there. There was like an old bottle of Eidelsbacher Karthauseroff, which was uh, spectacular that, that I found after he died. But uh, beyond that, there really wasn't much in his cellar. And then the booze, he never bought a new bottle of booze. So after going through years of my growing up, even though he would put lines on the fill levels, and I would drink some with at parties when they're out of town and then fill it up with water. So after uh, after he died, they were the still same watered down booze bottles that I'd grown up with. He's like, why does this shit freeze when I put it in a in the cooler? Like, Alcohol's not supposed touched, to do that. He never touched any of this. He didn't care. He didn't drink. It was the weirdest thing. So he, why do you think you got into it? To be different? Or? Yeah, that's what we were talking about a long time ago, weren't we? Um I was opening up this restaurant in San Francisco and I, I had one day off and I went to Napa Valley and as soon as I got, as soon as I started approaching the vineyards, the smell of the vineyards is what did it. You know, most sommeliers have a story about, oh, 1967, Ikem served with foie gras. I do not have any of those stories uh, until much later on. The uh, the reason I got into it was the smell, and smell is a huge thing for me, and probably is for all sommeliers. But for me, it was the smell of the vineyard, the uh, post harvest grapes sitting around, the burning of the vines, the toiling of the earth. So after that trip, I just became hooked, and I needed to get a job at a, a better restaurant with a nicer wine list, and I got a job at a restaurant called Ocean Avenue Seafood in Santa Monica right overlooking the water on Ocean Avenue. Gorgeous place, gorgeous venue. And the uh, the wine guy there, 
took me under his wing. David Bunyan was my first wine mentor. And uh, he had a, uh, a, a huge one-page wine list, but, you know, like not legal. It was like giant. It was like the biggest piece of paper, single piece of paper he could possibly find. Like what Moses brought down from the mountain? Yes, like yes. Like... It was a tablet of wine list. Menu on one side and, uh, and tablet of wine list on the other. So I went through the wine list from top to bottom and started calling up the producers. And uh, about once a month, I would drive up to Napa or Sonoma and meet with winemakers and walk the vineyards. And that's, that's what really got me hooked was going up to uh, wine country. Seeing it on a production side. Yeah. I mean, really, it was nature first. I grew up suburban, middle class. You know, there, there wasn't a lot of outdoors. We certainly didn't camp. Um, I had friends that did that, but I didn't. My family didn't. And I think that that nature and understanding the agricultural side of it and then going into the, uh, the wineries. I mean, the barrel room was a big thing. God, the smells of the barrel room. Yes, I showed so much enthusiasm that... Well, if he, you can talk like that. If you can be like, ha-ha! You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm like, sorry. Like what? Talk like... Well, like the voice, you know, the voiceover dude, if you can be like, this is great, you know what I mean? They're great. Your Cabernets are great. Um, yes, that's what it was. It was the voiceovers. Damn you, Levy. It, I think that enthusiasm is something you cannot teach in somebody. Either they have it or they don't. And that makes up for a lot. Not everything. Some enthusiastic people will never get it, but... That is a huge deal. Somebody who has passion, who wants to learn, can come a long way in a short period of time. So uh, I was fortunate that uh, David Munyon and others there saw that, felt that in me, and invited me to tastings and, and let me do interesting things. So I started reading about wine at that point. And I, I remember when I first read about Chassagne and Poulini, didn't know anything about them, but I found half bottles you know, who knows what they were, of Chassagne and Poulini and brought them into lineup and uh, tasted them with everybody just because, and I bought them. Uh, I spent, I still spend every penny I make on on food and wine and traveling. And we opened these bottles and talked about Chassagne and Poulini. God knows what we would have said since I didn't know what to say about them, didn't have anything to say about them. But that's, that was my beginning. Well, so I was just a waiter. I, I shouldn't say just a waiter. You know, nothing succeeds without waiters, but, but I wasn't a wine guy. I was a waiter who cared about wine. So when any of the other waiters would have questions, eventually they would ask me to come to their stations and they would watch my station. And I would talk wine with these people and then go back to my station serving tables. So that's how it started for me because there wasn't anybody working the floor at this casual restaurant. And then eventually the uh, crown jewel in this company is called the water grill and uh, was called the water grill. And they decided they wanted to have a sommelier and they transferred me over there. But even that was really, they wanted to say that they had a sommelier at their restaurant, but pay to have another waiter there. And I had to really earn my keep there. And again, my dad was integral in that. Not that he was super supportive of me being a sommelier at all, because he didn't really see a future in it, but he told me, make yourself invaluable to the restaurant. And that was brilliant advice for me. 
A, because those people could have fired me any minute, no question. B, because it forced me to learn more and, and it made me branch out. Because it, again, it's not like I ate at fine dining restaurants or anything. Had no history of it. I thought I was working at a really nice place when I was working at this uh, you know, mid-tier chain restaurant. So I uh, was integral in creating the tasting menu there. I uh, was integral in creating a caviar course, uh, a cheese cart. We had a cheese cart. I really did a lot of things that weren't just wine-related and would not get credit for any of those. My, my manager would get credit for all of them, but then he wouldn't fire me because I was making him look good. So you were the guy who went behind the bar and put the little marks on all the booze bottles like your dad had showed you how to do so you could tell how far they went down? We had an Austrian, I'm just going to, I'm going to be like a, a Republican presidential candidate and completely ignore your question. We had an Austrian general manager named Joachim Sandbikler and Joachim was uh, not very nice to me and uh one day we were short-staffed and Joachim was working as a bartender and he was working next to a head bartender whose name was George. And they were really busy and uh, they are running around in dripping sweat and, and Joachim's like, George, where's the doors? Where's the doors, George? My favorite memory of Joachim Sandbikler. You had hidden the doors so he couldn't find it. You'd been like, fuck this guy. No, I him. just wrote so many lines on it, it obscured the... The label doers. But it's crazy that you did have that experience with your dad with the, the lines. Because then later, I think everybody has those experiences. Well, oh, here we go. No, but later at Francis, you did this whole thing. Brilliant. Look at him, people. Oh, I mean, applause track. No, but had you ever, that ever occurred segue. to you before? No, it's You're never like, occurred to me. This is how I'm going to charge people the same way that I used to like. Did you drink it? <laughs> I know you drink right. it. Right. The Here, same conversations I used to have with my dad. <laughs> like, no, you can't add water to that carafe that I'm going to charge you by the ounce for. Well, with all due respect to my beloved father, his was to make sure I wasn't drinking, and mine was... Uh, to do the same. You're like, fuck revenue. We're going to, like, close <laughs> no, this place. No, it's the polar opposite. It's, it's you only pay for what you actually use. So I'm going to put an entire carafe in front of you. I'm going to fill it up. And then you're going to drink as much or as little as you want. And I'm only going to charge you for what you consume. Well, you know, sometimes you go so far right that you end up left. Me nice, yeah. him bad. <laughs> and I'm starting to feel you bad, too. I'm not bad. You bad. I'm trying to understand. Oh, boy, you bad. The reverend. Mm. I'm trying to understand the sermon. Mm. No, it's good stuff. It's positive. I think that we are in the service industry, which means taking care of our guests and not trying to screw them or monitor what they're doing. That's the rumor. You know what Theoretically, I mean? right? So how long were you at the Grill of Water? I think I was, I, I was with the company like six years, I think. I think I was the sommelier at the Water Grill for about three years. And then I was recruited by another restaurant and they offered me literally double what I was making, which, I mean, was from absolutely nothing to a, an embarrassingly low salary. But it was double what I was making at the time. And I was going to take the job. And I was working with Michael Simaresti, who's chef owner of Providence in L.A. And uh, I went to Simaresti and said, I just want to let you know, I'm going to be giving notice. I'm going to go to this restaurant. He's like, Why? They offered me double, and he said, no, you're, you're not allowed to leave. I said, why not? He said, because I'm going to open up a restaurant with you. And I said, whoa, you know, that's 
pretty amazing. Thank you. But um, I've been offered twice the amount of money and our director of operations wouldn't respond to my uh, phone calls. I don't know if we had email back then. Maybe we did. A long time ago, people. A long time ago. I remember sending it by carrier pigeon and the or pigeon must have been shot on the way to see you horse and rider perhaps so as a little elephant man there and um not sure what that was uh yeah so I mean he got the uh, director of operations to sit down with me the very next day and they doubled my salary and so I stayed there for a while longer what was that conversation like you were like hi it's Paul I tried to call you voice message straight to voicemail no, he looked right over me and uh, just was doing what his prized chef told him to do, basically. Right, right. I don't remember having any conversation with him at all. I'm sure we had one. The guy is actually solid. I respected him a lot, other than just ignoring me when I was trying to get a hold of him. But uh, from there, I, I don't remember what the time frame was, but I decided I needed to get more experience if I was going to be opening a restaurant with Michael Samaresti. So I left the water grill to go work with Josiah Citron at Melis Restaurant in Santa Monica. And that is the restaurant where I learned the most over my career. So he's arguably my biggest mentor, both in wine and restaurants. What was he like? Mean. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> You had to learn shit, otherwise he was going to freak out. Every time I, I go back to uh, Melis or talk to somebody who has worked there or works there now, they always say, including Josiah, will always say, uh, oh, I've, I've mellowed out a lot. Oh, he's mellowed out a lot. Oh, he's really grown up. Oh, he's really mellowed out. But we, we literally had to build a second door to enter the kitchen because he would yell so loud and you'd hear so much craziness. And, and he trained us to say, uh, oh, that's just the chef's passion. And I always thought that was hilarious. Do you still use that? No. <laughs> no, that's crazy. No, that's just the chef belittling somebody. That's all it was. But uh, we did eat there for our anniversary this year, uh, my wife and I, and, and we had an amazing, amazing meal. And I, I love Josiah, and I love that restaurant. It was, uh, it was amazing. We had just incredible – I mean, that's where I, I really became a sommelier because we had – Everybody coming in there with big bottles of wine or buying big bottles of wine. We had incredible legendary tastings. Of, I, I remember this, this one tasting in particular that is sort of emblematic of, of that restaurant and that time frame for me. And this is, this is, I never got to train under another sommelier. This is how I became a sommelier was we did these big old tastings and we did this Petrus tasting. We did two of them in a row, uh, like a month apart from each other. And 61 Petrus is to this day one of the greatest wines I've ever had. And I'd had it like four times when we did this first tasting. And Christian Moex was there. And uh, he had said, oh, I'm so excited to try 61 Petrus. <laughs> Excuse me? I've, I've had it like four times. He's like, you have? What's it taste like? So then we had 61 Petrus. And then the next tasting was 61 and older, all out of Magnums. That's and, cool. Uh, yeah, that's a way to learn about wine is to is to have these tastings, and then even better than that, after you've got some frame of reference, is to have friends who have these wines who will go out to dinner with you or have you to their house and uh, let you actually sit down and drink those wines. And I, I remember one of the first times that I ever got to drink those wines as opposed to tasting those wines 
was at the French Laundry. Do you mind me babbling? No, go ahead. I like to talk about drinking wine. Yeah. Oh, do you? Hey, <laughs> I mean, you should consider doing a podcast about it. It's a topic it. I'm fond of. Interesting. Interesting. I never I would never would have thought. See, never judge a book by its cover or a podcast by its title. So I was invited by a friend to go to the French laundry, and we're meeting a winemaker there. And my friend made wine at the time and was bringing a bottle of his wine. And I'm like, that that totally makes sense. It's the new release. He wants to share it with the restaurant. We'll taste it and then give it to them. I'm like, that's okay. And then when we show up, the guy who we're joining, the other winemaker, had literally a box of wine. And I was mortified. And uh, Bobby Stuckey was the, the sommelier at the time. And I was trying really hard to get eye contact with Bobby so that I could empathize, show him how, how mortified I was that I was with people that were bringing corkage into the French laundry. He had really created an amazing program there and we weren't going to buy any wines there. And he wouldn't look at me. He was you know busy taking care of this box of wines. And I thought it was like disdain that he was just doing this. And then they, he comes over and he says, uh, we would like to send over this bottle of Bicart Cuvée Elizabeth. And I'm like, excuse me, they're, they're comping that huge epic bottle of champagne. And then the wine started coming out and they were DRC Monarchés and 55 Rothschild and uh, 60, 70 Cam. And I got to sit down and actually drink these wines as opposed to just tasting these. And I was uh, in a stupor the entire time. It's one of those moments where wine is no longer a beverage. It is art and it is incredibly emotional knowing what it is that's in your glass, how much it costs and when and where it came from. And, and those are the types of experiences that propel my career forward. And, and more than that, my artistry. I mean, I went to art school and I feel that what we do in a great restaurant is art. You know, it's, it is painting, it is dance, it is music, it is everything. It doesn't have to be. And I like to create restaurants that if you don't want to go to the museum, you can just come in and eat and drink and leave and hopefully pay and then leave. And if you want, you can sit down and ask questions about every ingredient because hopefully we've thought about every detail, every aspect of everything and created uh, a masterpiece is the goal, even at a casual price point. You say this, but at the same time, when I think of you, I think of a guy who really went from high-end dining to more neighborhood place with good food and good wine, but in a more casual setting. So, I mean, I think when some people talk about the artistry of wine, they're also talking about this is going to be quite expensive. <laughs> but I feel like you were one of the first guys before it became a popular thing to do on the regular where you were like, you know, it's about good food and wine, but it doesn't have to be about all the pomp and circumstance of that. And we could make this affordable. He nods his head knowingly more and more enthusiastically. Yeah, when Melissa and I opened up Francis, I mean, it seems kind of weird to say Melissa and I, when Melissa and I and, you know, 50 other people and 30 other people that I can name that were part of that, uh, it was a strange concept, but it was the direction that I was already going. I feel like you'd seen the play in the back of the house strings and you were like, you know, we could make this like <laughs> not in old English. Like, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I... You know, I'm, I'm weird response to that, but most 
chefs look to open a restaurant, they look to open up their qua first and their uh, Alta second. And that's just the way it's gone historically. You create a name for yourself as being an insanely good chef, and then you open up the approachable, affordable place. And I've been feeling uh, before Francis, I had felt that really the opposite makes more sense. You open up a place where everybody can come and afford to eat and you make money because you, you make a lot more money off of a casual restaurant than you, or you have the potential to make more money off a casual restaurant than you do a high-end restaurant. And then hopefully people are loving what you're doing and they want to see a finer version. So what we tried to do at Francis was there are definitely compromises, but where where do the compromises come in? We're in complete control over that. Um, all of our servers came from Qua and Quince and Fifth Floor and these fancy restaurants. And they all, including Melissa and I, then we said, let's not dumb it down. Let's not make a cheaper version. Let's cook what we want to eat and let's drink what we want to drink. You know, it wasn't a huge wine cellar like there have been at other restaurants I've had. I actually make the list on purpose. Nothing needs to be decanted uh, like I do at other restaurants where things you know need to be decanted. So you simplify certain things like that. But the idea that there's a huge difference between fine dining and casual dining is, is not real. It's not serious. It's not some, it doesn't have to be that way. I think part of that's an ingredient thing, right? Like, yes, if we're not using beluga, but we still execute well, it doesn't have to cost $200. I think that's a great point, yes. So you come into a place like Francis, yeah, one of the things is you're not going to get caviar, lobster, truffles. And if you do, when you do, there's going to be a giant S surcharge on there. Sure, that's how you can keep it. That's one of the ways that you can keep it more affordable, absolutely, so that people aren't coming into Francis and expecting qua service. Yeah, that's... That's another thing. We have servers who understand the highest level uh, and understand all the rules. And then you determine, well, what actually pertains to this atmosphere? What pertains to this meal as opposed to the solemn walk up and stuff? I mean, not like that's my service anyways. But when did you open Francis? I think it's almost seven years ago, November. I'm really bad with dates and time, but I think it's something like that, six or seven years ago. But after the recession? Yeah. How was that playing out for you personally in San Francisco? Well, it's, I guess, another reason why I like casual dining. It's my opinion, and, and the Morris is going into that, I think that those are the smartest restaurants to own because no matter what happens, you know, I worked at, at Melis during 9-11 and after 9-11, and there was a, a there was a period for the first week or two where I was uh, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but I had a little bit of disdain for any diners that were coming in. I felt like you shouldn't be here. You should be home. You know, the, it was it was so emotional. God, that was such a crazy time. And I was in California, not New York, but it was still insane. I'm and that's a silly statement. Uh, it was incredible for for all Americans. Um, but a place like Francis is always going to be busy because when something horrible happens, you don't stop going out. You might stop going out to a, a 14 course tasting menu, but you're still going to want to go out and, and be around people and eat and drink. 
you might not eat and drink and be merry, but you're still going to need to be around people. So the idea of making a restaurant that's as affordable as possible while still using the best ingredients you can, not beluga caviar and things that would make it an incredibly expensive experience, but just great produce, great meat, great fish, great poultry, and great vegetables and great wine, just more affordable versions thereof, but still using the top tier product, that's never going to have an issue. If you're doing something at the highest level, you're never going to have an issue. But I feel like those kind of restaurants, one of the problems that operators can face is that they can kind of slip off the press radar because they're not, you know, they don't have that glamour, the glitz of the, the high-end dining. They don't have the flash, the pizzazz, and people kind of can take them for granted. And sometimes people start to forget about them or feel like, oh, I've been there, but the last time they were there was like two years ago. Or yeah. You know, like, oh, we go there all the time. Really? When's the last time you were in? Uh, you know, 2013. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're saying. I think that it's our responsibility as managers, sommeliers, owners, you know, hopefully the entire staff, but certainly as, as key players to not lose the excitement in a restaurant. So when I talk about a place like Zuni, which I talk about a lot because I love Zuni and I use it as uh, one of the world's most important restaurants. And every time I go to Zuni, I go for the chicken and we'll get some other things. And we, we kind of have a set menu that we get, but we get the chicken. So every so often we crave the chicken, I'd say about once a month, and we go into Zuni for the chicken. So is that getting any less exciting to anyone? No, because the chicken quality is still as good as it's ever been. It's pretty much the greatest roast chicken you can have or one of the best roast chickens you can have. So I think that if you're firing on all cylinders, you're able to keep your enthusiasm up and your energy level up. Uh, as long as you're doing an incredible job, you will never go out of fashion. I think that one of the things that that happens is, is you can read your own press, like the Francis Press. I'm, I don't know where this started, but the more press I get, the harder I work. If we get, you know, at Qua or Francis, we get a Michelin star. I, I almost sweat that. It's awesome. I love being recognized for, for what I do. I love awards. I love the fact that you called me in to do this podcast. I'm so freaking flattered to be here. But the, the more press that you get, the more people come into your establishment with a chip on their shoulder and the harder they are to impress and the harder we have to work to make sure things are better, you always have to try to exceed expectations and not just, you know, yeah, yeah, that, that was as good as I remember. But, you know, my God, that was even better than I remember. That's the response you need. And that's how you keep something from getting stale or, or even not getting stale, but just slipping under the radar. We have so many new restaurants in San Francisco opening up right now and opening up soon. It is insane how many places are opening up. So we're not going to go to all of them. No one's going to go to all of them except maybe some of the critics. And even they won't go to all of them, I'm sure. So, so how do you stand out? You stand out by doing quality, by forcing people to come to you. By word of mouth, that chicken is so good, how can you ignore it forever? At some point, you have to go in and have that chicken. So what's the key to keeping the enthusiasm up for the staff at a restaurant like that? I've been so lucky... The last uh, three, four years, my wife and I have been spending most of our time traveling around the world. And 
getting to see things from the angle of a consumer as a, a diner rather than as a restaurateur. So it's very, but I think I always did some of this. I go into Francis and Octavia and I do pre-ships, pre-ships. I do, I sail on a boat, pre-ship, pre-ship. I, uh, I do the, the staff education, the lineups, and it's usually telling a story about a dining experience I had, something good or something bad, and saying, let's focus on this. You know, if you come in and say, hey, let's focus on fill levels tonight, it's going to go in one ear and go out the other. But if you say, I went to this restaurant, it was so good, but by the time I left, my arm was sore from waving at the server trying to get more water, and my throat was sore because I was parched the entire time. So telling a story about it is something that's going to last a little bit more. Rather than being like, two ounces, I said two ounces. Well, okay, so that's, that's a, another aspect is, uh, God, so many stories, but that, that is another aspect of it is remembering that the guest in your restaurant is a human being. Uh, are some of them assholes? No question. But it doesn't matter because I'm an asshole sometimes and uh, you're an asshole sometimes. Everybody's an asshole sometime. So talking about that, you know, when, when I tell stories about uh, I went in there and I was an asshole to somebody, uh, you know, I mean, my staff has seen it. I've yelled at everybody at one point, but I'm a nice enough guy or I, I'm self-reflective enough to realize that and go back and apologize and, and discuss it. And your diners aren't necessarily usually going to come back and apologize when they're a jerk to you, but it's not your place to then be a jerk back to them or to hate them or talk shit about them. There is a restaurant in LA that had a policy of no shit talking the, the guest. And it was a, a, you said something bad about a table, you're fired. Oh really? Yeah. Period. Yeah. Cause Super it can hard. be uh, it can build on itself. Like one waiter complains, the other waiter feels like they have to complain. And then it's a bitch spirals. session in the back of house. Right. Yeah, and and you know we've all done it. I'm not I'm not saying I never do that. I am perfect. No, no, no. I need you all to watch me too. I make ridiculous amounts of mistakes, but together we can help each other to not make as many mistakes and to catch the mistakes that we're making. So yeah, I think that shit talking a guest is crazy. I've got uh, one of my superhero powers is restaurant ears. Uh, I can hear every conversation in a restaurant. And I'll constantly tell my staff that, you know, table six hears you. And there's no chance that table six can hear me, Paul. I can hear you, which means we assume they can hear you. No shit talking about the guest in case they were to hear you. But also just to keep that clean attitude. We just don't know who, what, when, where, why, how. We don't know the backstory. So it's taking care of people. If you just have something that's written on a piece of paper, okay, it means one thing. But if you can understand why it's a rule, why that thing is or is not important, then it makes sense. So any new policy or procedure that I implement or try to implement, every time the, the staff will be like, that's stupid. I hate that. We're not doing it. It's going to take too long. But my rule is you implement it and you try it for at least a week, maybe two, depending on what the thing is. And then have reasons for why it doesn't work. You don't just poo-poo it from the beginning. And how have you seen uh, San Francisco's restaurant scene change over that period of time? Like since the recession, what's happened? San Francisco's always been a roller coaster. I mean, it. I've never charted it and grafted it with uh, the tech scene, but I'm sure that the two of them are, are going up and down alongside of each other. I don't think that they directly influence what restaurants are opening you know, tech boom, tech bust, but 
they certainly have got to mirror each other or coincide in some way. There are times when it is mellow and nothing new is opening and there's not any, you know, quote unquote, cutting edge excitement. Not that I care about cutting edge excitement, but, uh, you know, it's something like when, when people come to town, like, where am I eating? What's exciting? Well, my answer would be Zuni and Nopa. There's nothing cutting edge about Nopa, but Nopa's brilliant and amazing. It's a restaurant that fires on all cylinders, so why wouldn't you want to eat there? Well, right now there are cutting edge places or, or places that are doing interesting, unique things. So we're definitely on a high note right now. And I, I think that we're going to plateau, not in a negative way. I think we're going to plateau at the peak rather than go up and shoot down. I think we're going to stay at this high level for a little while. And uh, then I'm sure there will be a little bit of a, a tech bust. And a lot of these restaurants will go out of business. But I also think that because there are so many places opening, well, I, I can tell you from experience, the right deals in San Francisco are few and far between. The landlords, both for living and for businesses, are greedy as fuck right now. I believe that's the first time I've used the fuck word on this podcast, on this particular show. Does that mean I now get the explicit? Uh, Married badge? Yes. Sweet. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Fuckity fuck. So the market rate has just shot through the roof for what rental properties are for everything. And that's why it took me four and a half years to find the space for the Morris because I'm not going to open up a business that might not be able to pay that minimum rent. That just doesn't make sense to me. So all these places that are opening right now are closing just as fast. I mean, not all of them. Obviously, the good will survive. But that's also why I don't worry about opening up another restaurant because I'm going to run it properly and, and I've got a, a better deal than most people. So I think it has all of the factors to succeed, fingers crossed. So you're saying that in the industry, there have been a parabola curve. It's gone up, it's gone down, and it's better to have a neighborhood restaurant in that environment for the long term than mm. it is to try to bet on fine dining when it could be a bust around the corner in tech, which is going to destroy your business model. The reality to that is that rich people are always going to be rich. And right now, the rich people are way richer than they were before. Before they, you know, and during the last couple of busts, they've been getting richer during the bust. So I think that what happens is they will go more to a private island and spend a lot of money than to a restaurant with a lot of glass windows. With that said, if you're doing an amazing fine dining restaurant, you're probably going to succeed. Everything's about quality. So there are amazing restaurants that will. They're, they're going to get hurt. I think the big difference is that they're not going to sell as high-end bottles of wine, and we definitely saw that happen where there would just be a ceiling on how much people would spend on wine in public. And, uh, and don't get me wrong, I love fine dining. I love that game. It is so, I mean, it's, it's the pinnacle of what we do, for sure. I'm not saying that the restaurants that I'm, I love doing right now are the beginning and end. Fine dining is great. That, that's where you get to say, I'm not compromising anywhere. And that is super, super fun to polish every corner. And where, where someone like me who really cares about every step in the restaurant experience, not just they walk in the door, they sit down, they order, they eat, they pay, they leave. 
but everything in between, every nanosecond in between. That is so much fun. And I hope to be able to open up a fine dining restaurant at some point. But uh, first, I think you you create a base where you've got a, a an insulated business, a place where people are going to support. So people in the tech business, do they drink wine like people in the tech business used to drink wine? Like Segway. Like when you look at the cold cab boom, I think of that as really based on tech guys buying local cab instead of Bordeaux. It was like the California scene really powered that movement. So what's happening this time? People in tech who are coding for 25 hours straight and then going to restaurants, you know, what are they drinking? <laughs> okay, so first, and, and, you know, tell me to move along if you want, but I don't think that tech guys were the Colt Cabernet thing because that's, that's when I became a sommelier. Uh, one of the things I did when I was at one of the mid-tier restaurants I was working at is I would go to this wine bar, Red Carpet Liquor in Glendale, and I'd spend 40 bucks every Friday night. They would do uh, like wine bar night or something, and they'd do flights of wine, and I was drinking Colt Cabs, all these, you know, legendary wines. Um, and You're saying that you drove the Colt Cab boom. You yes, personally, yes. Paul Einbun. And I'm not a tech guy. Yes, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Short Jews drove the uh, Colt Cabernet. Well, no, I'm saying that that the excitement around the bar was everyone, and I don't think Glendale's a big tech area. I mean, I do feel that LA has a an industry bubble that will never burst because the entertainment industry is never, you know, we're always going to watch TV and movies. And San Francisco has a slightly more um, tumultuous financial structure, but not that much. Even during a tech bubble or burst, we still have a ton of young people who are going out. They're not drinking DRC or Colt Cab, but they're drinking. Uh, now to, to directly answer your question, and, uh, you know, it's weird. People ask, you know, what's, what's the next great grape and, you know, what are people drinking these days? And it's always been a really difficult question for me because people drink what I am excited about. So it's hard for me to say, I mean, now that I'm not working the floor at Francis and Octavia, uh, I can tell you like on occasion wines that I'm surprised people aren't drinking. And if I was working the floor, they would be drinking it. But so I get that. And it's, you know, one of the many reasons I'm excited to open a restaurant is to be on the floor selling these wines that I'm obsessed about that people for some reason aren't buying, but I, I think it's enthusiasm. I mean, it's, you know what? I, I, I was listening to uh, the great Robert Bohr on your podcast uh, the other day, and he was talking about uh, Michel Couvreau being able to identify what a table wanted in like, you know, eight notes or less. I told staff about this at a, a lineup whenever I'd listened to it. And that doesn't mean to jump the gun. That doesn't mean to try and beat the legendary man who could do it in eight notes. The idea is listen to your guest and figure out what it is they're saying. And that's what my staff, you know, my, my staff training is about gaining experience using words. I'm not trying to make master sommeliers at these classes. I'm trying to get my staff to taste wines and talk about wines and all wines are tasted blind. And then we talk about, you know, what they are and what the through lines are. And then at the end, we talk a little bit about whatever the, the theme was of it. But the idea is to have had all these wines and start amassing up a, uh, 
a tasting library in your mind of all the wines that you've had so that when you're talking to a guest, it's a whole reason I drink wine all the time and that, and I like the flavor of it, but, but is to be able to communicate with somebody when somebody comes in and said, Oh, I just had this. I can be like, Oh, I, I don't have that, but I do have this and this that are kind of like it. And here's how they're the same. And here's how they're different. And you know what though? Do you want to take something from left field? Cause this is kind of got this note that you're talking about, but it's totally different. And I am freaking obsessed with it. And here's why. And one of my least favorite things is uh, friends told me a story of going in to see a sommelier who I was friends with. And they said, we're, we're thinking about this wine or this wine. And my quote unquote friend said this one. And they said, why? It's better. And he walked away like better for you, better for your margin, better to get you a trip somewhere, better for what? Was did that even come close to answering any no. No. Yeah. Imagine I were to ask you what the guys in tech like to drink or the women in tech like to drink. What do you think you might say to that question? Should I have asked it? Jeez, I I don't know, Levy. I I don't I don't make my list for trends or fads or what I think is going to sell. I make my list to pair with the food, the concept, the price point, and based on my palate. I I hate the idea of something for everyone, so it's not like hitting all targets, but I also am not a big fan of themed wine lists. You know, there's some notable exceptions, Italian wine list, Casamono, um this new place in uh, San Francisco called Kala. She's got a themed wine list that really works, but I think it's hard to do that. I would rather follow my palate and put good representative wines on classic flavors that represent where they're from, that work with the theme of the restaurant, the food, the price point, et cetera. And then usually you can work, I mean, really you can work within those boundaries and, and my staff should be trained. If somebody comes in and asks for a white Zinfandel, we should have an answer for you. Has your palate changed over time? Oh my God, yes. And how has that happened? When you look back at the Paul of a few years ago, <laughs> what have been the changes? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I would say it's the original sommelier or pre-sommelier when I was tasting all these cult cabs. That was, I mean, when I became a sommelier at the water grill at a fish house, the cool thing was uh, the, these Robert Parker wines. That's what you did. That's what I did. That was the cool fad of the of the time. And um, the Grateful Palate, Australian wine collection, literally take, you know, sometimes I'd get one or two bottles of something. Uh, that would be my allocation because everybody wanted it. And I remember going to a table and saying, oh my gosh, this is 18% alcohol. Enjoy it with your, you know, filet of sole. <laughs> it make, you know, enjoy it with your oysters. It, it makes no sense, but that's what we were excited about at the time. And sine qua non, you know, I haven't had one in a while. Unfortunately, my collection of sine qua non has dwindled. Uh, I did drink most of them. I should have sold them. But I love Manfred and Elaine Krankel so much. Their artistry, spectacular. The the concept from the newsletter, the, the release letter, to redesigning the labels and the bottles. It's so exciting to be part of that. Is that a style of wine that I gravitate to? Absolutely not. I'm I'm not saying that I wouldn't like one if I were to open one up tonight. I might. I really don't know. I, I 
I should do it. I should see where it stands. But I do know that I I consulted at the slanted door for six months, and my job was to go in there and sort of break things up because the beverage director who had opened that restaurant and been there for years had literally brainwashed everyone into thinking there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And I don't feel that that is true. I proved that it's not true on many occasions. Was he correct that his was the best way? A hundred percent. Yes. His way was the best way of pairing, but it's not the only way. And so I went in there saying, look at all these great domestic wines that can pair with these foods. And I put on some by the glass and got tons of pushback. And then they started tasting things. I would go in there a couple days a week and I would go into the private dining room and I would just open wines and I would get a bunch of food out and people could come over and eat and drink. So they would come only because there was free food and free booze. But, uh, you know, a couple of them would come to, to learn, I suppose. I would taste these things, and yeah, there were a lot of fails, but the reason I brought that up is after I left Slanted Door, I, and I, I, was, I was tirading that you can't just look at the alcohol on a label, but after I left Slanted Door, I think they had done more to change me than I had done to change them because I started not being able to tolerate the high alcohol in wines, and I really don't it's definitely not dogmatic. I definitely don't pick up a wine and look at the label and see what the alcohol is. No, I won't taste that. But I find myself not enjoying high alcohol wines as much as I did. And I remember that when I was drinking the Colt Cabs, the people who were classicists drinking the classic regions that were low alcohol and balanced wines, I would kind of laugh at as being old men. And now I'm definitely one of those old men who needs balance and, and uh, high acid and lower alcohol. So what do you think about the sommelier scene in San Francisco over the period of time that you've been here? I mean, is there a San Francisco style of service? Is there something that San Francisco is known for, should be known for? Has it changed a lot? Somebody was telling me the other day that they uh, were traveling or something like that. And they went, they came back to San Francisco, went to a restaurant and they're like, wait, the servers are nice to me. What's happening? Uh, I, I think that our style of service should be pretty good, attentive, knowledgeable, happy, smiley people that hopefully describes the service industry. And I would like to think that that's our style of service. And mine just pushes all of those points to the nth degree. Service is the most important thing to me in a restaurant. I think that the world's dining scene is is really exciting right now. We've got all these young people that are interested in restaurants. Whereas when I got into the restaurant scene, it was, you know, I really looked at it as a place where you went if you didn't go to college and you were uneducated. And the reason I took the job at Ocean Avenue Seafood was a, a friend of mine started working there, uh, Julie, uh, Julie Mysek, I think her last name's Flaherty now. She moved over there and I was really bummed to see her go. And I went to visit her one day and she interrupted a manager meeting and, and brought me over to this table where all the managers were and the chef. And, and Julie and I were about to go do a food and wine pairing class at CIA Greystone in Napa. And uh, 
they started one by one. They went around the table. Oh, when you're there, say hi to so-and-so. Oh, who's teaching the course? Oh, tell them I say hi. Oh, you got to go here when you're that. Every single person around that table was a professional restaurant employee. And that was the totally the first time I'd ever seen that. And now you've got so many, I mean, how many Harvard grads, you know, Thad Vogler, the, good God, guy's a genius. There's so many brilliant people. Uh, you know, Daniel Patterson's a genius. There's so many incredibly smart people in this industry who do this as their art. But when I started, there were maybe five sommeliers in Los Angeles, maybe. And I certainly hadn't seen any of them and didn't know any of them for a long time. And I know that not every city is that way. San Francisco uh, has pretty much always had this social interaction, non-competitive thing that, that we have here, which is amazing where we share everything. But I think that Top Chef, they've definitely created the Top Chef chef syndrome where young cooks aren't interested in paying their dues and, and, uh, and working and learning. They want to instantly be the star. And that is definitely starting or come into the uh, sommelier realm as well. I sent one of my former assistant sommeliers for an interview. And he, uh, during the interview, they said, what do you want from your career? And he said, oh, I want to travel on cruise ships and, and, you know, do panels and be taken all over the world like Paul. And the person who I sent him to called me out and said, hey, thanks for sending that guy to me, you know, who doesn't want to work. And I was really embarrassed. Uh, yeah, I, I, I get asked to do all these ridiculously amazing things. I'm blown away by all the opportunities I have. But I also worked six days a week or seven days a week and, and worked 16-hour days for, for many, many years before that started happening to me. You got to pay your dues a little bit. So the young sommelier scene has come about because most restaurateurs don't want to pay to have an experienced sommelier. So we don't have a lot of sommelier jobs. So they're hiring a manager and the perk is they get to run the beverage program. And some of them are amazing. Some of them are natural, you know, talents. They really are blossoming and, you know, we're great from day one. Others are learning and really getting better at uh, what they do. And, and, you know, they weren't so great when they started, but they're figuring it out on the job. And others will probably never figure it out. And others are just copying what, you know, is on delectable, you know, what Raj likes on delectable. Not that they can get what Raj is drinking, but. What's it been like for you doing your own label? You know, you have Seam Wines. The reason I started making wine was um, Costa, Anton Glue. He, uh, he's been my head waiter at every restaurant I've been involved with in San Francisco. And uh, at, I think it was my first restaurant in San Francisco, Tartar with George Marone and Abhi Shapurian. Uh, one day, Costa says, why don't you make wine? And I'm like, eh, I'm not, you know, that's not what I do. I'm a sommelier. And... And then we talked about it a little bit and I thought about it. I'm like, you're right. I can learn so much about it. So I've never done it as a money-making thing. I've done it as an educational thing. And I made this tiny project in 2005. I made Gemstone Cabernet with Paul Frank, the then owner of Gemstone, and Paul Hobbs, uh, who was the original winemaker for Gemstone. And we made a Napa Cab. And it's, you know, it's as good as a Colt Napa Cab can be. It's amazing wine. We, uh, we made three barrels. 
we called the wine three. I painted the label myself. It's, it's a really cool project. And the wine's actually still showing really well. Not again, not like the, the ultimate style of wine that I love these days, uh, or even then, but, but it's a beautiful wine. And, and then that was it. Cause it was this very expensive wine that didn't necessarily represent what I cared to portray to the world. Well, you were moving into your Francis era. I was moving close to the Francis era. Yeah. So this new label seem came about because of the house wines that I make at Francis. Uh, I go up to Miraflores winery and work with a uh, winemaker, Marco Capelli, who used to be the winemaker at Swanson vineyard for years. And he was uh, the first winemaker in Napa Valley that I tasted with and became friends with. And before I was a sommelier, long before I was a sommelier, I would stay with Marco when I would stay in Napa. And we've had this relationship forever. And so I go up to this winery and I blind taste between 20 and 40 lots of wines. I select my favorites. Uh, we do little barrel samples into bottles and line them up. And then I taste them again and I make a blend that I think is going to work with Los Prelos food for the upcoming season. We put those wines into kegs and serve them in those lined carafes that we were talking about. Several visits in a row, I was tasting this particular lot of Barbera and choosing it blind every single time as, as the base of my wine. And, and one visit, Marco says, you know, I've got 10 more barrels of this if you want to bottle it. And I was like, no, you know, I don't, I don't make wine. I don't deal with that. And then I went home and I was thinking about it. It's, it's like a three-hour drive to get to and from the winery. So on the three hours alone driving home, eating In-N-Out French fries, I... That's too bad because those are not uh, the best part of In-N-Out, I think. Uh, what's your favorite part of In-N-Out? I like the burgers, but the French fries are not the best. Oh, oh, God. You know, this, this freaking interview is over. <laughs> Over. You, you like those fries? I do. I love peanut oil. I think that they're great. They're, they're, I mean, other than high-end French fries, George Marone and, and Michael Mina's duck fat French fries, this is about as good as it gets for me. Huh. I love those fries. All right. You want to go further on this? You're on the right, you're on the you right coast. You want to go further on this mother? <laughs> no, I mean, to each their own. It's, you know. <laughs> to each their own. Some people don't I know how to appreciate you a good French fry when they see it, you know. <laughs> Whatever. So on this long drive home, I decided, bring it back, kid. Bring it back. I decided, pull yourself together, Rock. You're a bum. I decided uh, that I'm about as snobby as uh, someone can be. Uh, I'm super critical of everything. And if not, this not French fries, apparently, <laughs> like the, the evidence is actually uh, you, apparently skewed on this. You, sir, shall burn in hell directly. Commence burning now. Uh, I thought that if I could bottle this wine for an affordable price and sell it for an affordable price, that it could be a really good idea. So I started doing that and it's been a really fun project to pick out these lots that are varietally true and taste like where they come from and are delicious and I can sell for an affordable price. But in 2013, I was offered fruit from a vineyard called Barnum Vineyards, a 40-year-old, head-trained, own-rooted Barbera vineyard in El Dorado, non-irrigated. And they let me do anything I want, pick whatever lots I want, however I want. And everybody thought that I was insane when I was picking grapes at 21.5 bricks. And 
this 2013 Barbera is super, super exciting, and I, I can't wait to bottle it. And it's grown from there. I've got a, uh, a vineyard. I don't know how Tegan missed this vineyard, but I've got a 100-year-old uh, Moved vineyard in Antioch that is like literally, I mean, sandlands. It's walking in a beach. It's crazy. I don't know how they're able to pick the fruit there and get it to me as clean as they do because it is literally a beach. And then in 2014, I also got some fruit from Stony Hill, uh, got some Chardonnay. Pretty high class territory like, there. Oh my God. One of the most gorgeous properties in the world. Spectacular. I got some of that legendary Chardonnay in 14. So I've got a lot of uh, exciting stuff coming out for the seam label too. And that'll be interesting. My wife hand painted the labels. I mean, she does amazing labels. She's done some gorgeous labels. And hopefully these are going to turn out well and do justice to the painting she made. I'm I'm excited about this. I feel like your wife's been a big part of your food and wine life. You know, more than some other couples. I really love people who aren't in our industry when they taste things and comment and how they comment. And, you know, if you taste with a, a coffee person or a tea person, each time they're going to talk, they say, I don't know anything about wine, but I find the acid balance to be out of whack here. And I can't believe the grip here is really interesting. And there's a, a funky animal. I'm like, you just... You just spoke like a master sommelier. Maybe you didn't use the exact right words, but you are tasting like a professional wine taster because they taste for a living. I really love tasting with people who aren't in our industry, and my wife tastes like that too. She'll just say, hmm, I think that this is weird. You know, this raw opinion on something is great as opposed to saying, you know, that's that's Alain Ducasse. You do not say anything bad about Alain Ducasse, period. But really, lobster and short rib? Really, Elon? Really? Paul Einbud, he got into wine because he liked the smell of wine, and he's still excited about it. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And really, more than anything, I'm just so flattered and honored to be on this, your 10,000th podcast. Thank you so much for choosing me for this momentous occasion. Paul Einbund of Francis and also Octavia. And soon to be the Morris. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.